Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning and Music at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week, we're reading two of the foundational texts of the Hebrew Bible, the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5, 1-21, and the text known as the Shema in the Jewish tradition in Deuteronomy 6, 4-9. We discuss the way that the Shema cuts across the cacophony of voices vying for our attention with a resounding, Listen, O Israel, calling us away from the voice of Pharaoh and focusing us on the one God who set us free from bondage in Egypt. We discuss the urgency of the Ten Commandments as the framework for an alternative way of life as God's people who love God with heart, mind, and soul and protect the integrity of the community. And we notice the repeated emphasis in this text on sharing the story across multiple generations, paying attention both to those who came before and those who will come after, as we remind ourselves of what it means to truly be the people of God in the world. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? I am pretty good. Yesterday, my husband and I were like, we're old enough that we have to like, you know, think about our, what are we going to do when we retire? Are we going to be poverty stricken? Like all that, you know, kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so we started filling out this packet of paperwork that someone had given us. And I, I swear to you, Bobby, they were like, when do you plan to die? Like, (laughs) 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 first it was like, when do you plan to retire? And then it was like, when do you plan to die? And it was like, if I knew that and like, how much, how bad do you think your health situation is going to be? I mean, if I knew these things, I wouldn't need a stupid packet. Right. (laughs) Yeah. This has nothing to do with anything except that's, that's the excitement in my life. Yeah. Trying to. It's funny how excitement. Predict changes as you get older. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm curious, when are you planning to die, Amy? <laughs> <laughs> hmm. uh, yeah, I, I think I there was a box that said, help me estimate. <laughs> I checked that one. <laughs> so you checked that one? Please help me estimate. That's gonna be, I, I want to know how that conversation know. goes. <laughs> like you, so you're going to talk with somebody and they're going to help you estimate? Is that how it's they're going gonna to help me estimate. Mm-hmm. Estimate <laughs> the date of my death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what's gonna happen. I think I'm gonna live till I'm 90. Is what my financial planner has decided. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's, that's a little that's optimistic, but that's a nice long life. Yeah. Anyway, all right, oh, Amy. Man. This week we are in the Book of Deuteronomy. Two really yeah. central passages, like key to the whole everything. The first is the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter five, and then is. Part of the prayer known as the Shema uh, in Deuteronomy 6, 4 mm-hmm. through 9. Amy, I know I'll, we always say this in the Hebrew Bible section of the podcast. A lot has happened. When last mm-hmm. we met, Moses had, uh, he had survived his childhood and he had encountered the Lord at the burning bush. 
Mm-hmm. Now we are in Deuteronomy 5. So we have skipped, I mean, basically three books of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot you could say about what gets us to this point, but what do we need to know to get us ready for Deuteronomy 5, do you think? This is what I would lift up of what has happened between then and now. Um, the Israelites are, God rescues them from Egypt. There's this, you know, miraculous rescue crossing through the sea. There's an encounter with God at Sinai in the book of Exodus. And I actually have to keep reminding myself because we're we're reading about that encounter yes. here. But it happened in Exodus. What we're yes. reading is sort of a, a recollection of it. And then there's a long period of time that the Israelites are traveling through the desert. They're wandering through the desert. And God basically says, you are not ready to go into the land yet. Like, it's not that the desert is so big. It's that you're not ready for the next thing. Yeah. And so you need to keep, you need to stay in this sort of state of, of, deep interdependence and profound vulnerability yeah. <laughs> wandering in the desert and eating manna until I say it's time. Yeah. Also during that time, for reasons we won't go into, we we learn that the entire generation that has come out of slavery in Egypt is going to die in the desert. Yes. They are not the ones who are going to go into the land. It's their children. So during this time, like, they get lots of rules, lots of laws. They have lots of arguments, blah, blah, blah. That's the whole Torah, right? (laughs) (laughs) Skip that part. Now we're in Deuteronomy. Moses has also been told he is not going into the land. He is leading them up to the land, and then that's it. In the book of Deuteronomy, like, really the the plot line is that this is Moses' like, last sort of reminders to the people and trying to impart in them as strongly as possible some like deep sense of connection with this whole incredible miraculous history that has unfolded over the time that they've been in the desert in the hopes that when they go into the land they will do right by God yes and and therefore be able to have this good and beautiful life there. Yes. So it's it's really a mostly a long speech from Moses who it you know used to say was was slow of tongue. He really found a lot of words by the time he <laughs> yeah. got to Deuteronomy, yeah. he had a lot to say. But he feel he clearly feels a real sense of urgency in trying to impart this stuff to the people. It's like yeah. his last chance to steer him right. Yeah. I really like what you said there about they were not ready to enter into the land. And so they needed to stay in this period of vulnerability. When you say that, it rings true. Like, yes, that's what's happening. But I don't really think of it that way exactly. So I really like that. I just think of it as they were afraid of the Canaanite soldiers when they went to spy out the land. And Mm -hmm. God said, fine, if you're going to be a scaredy pants, (laughs) you got to stay in the wilderness until you all die. Which yeah. I mean is also true. It's also but, true. Yeah. But the reason that they're scared to go into the land is because they are not thinking in terms of like reliance on God and trusting in God to, to take care of them. And so they're not ready to go into the land. They're not prepared. I really like that f- framing of it that you've given us because, you know, it's a land flowing with milk and honey and it is a land of abundance. And you and I talk. Uh, from time to time on the podcast about how there is 
clearly some anxiousness, both on God's part and then on Moses' part, about whether the people can handle Mm -hmm. being in a prosperous place after this long period of being first enslaved in Egypt and then wandering in the wilderness. Are they going to be able to handle prosperity? I think that's such an interesting way to frame it, especially in our context where we live in a land of prosperity, at least you and Mm -hmm. I. And like, are we ready to handle it? And are our congregations and faith communities ready to handle it? Like such an interesting framing. Yeah. So what we're reading then in chapter five, verse one to 21 of Deuteronomy is Moses retelling of the 10 commandments. Mm -hmm. The 10 commandments themselves were given the first time by God on Sinai back in Exodus 20. And then we've had a whole generation of wilderness wandering. And now Moses and really the next generation of Israel are looking over the promised land up on Mount Nebo. And Moses is saying, remember that this, remember this covenant that God made with us back on Sinai. Yeah. So we're picking up then in Deuteronomy chapter five. And so I will pick up in verse one and I'm reading the common English Bible. Moses called out to all Israel, saying to them, Israel, listen to the regulations and the case laws that I'm recounting in your hearing right now. Learn them and carefully do them. The Lord your God made a covenant with us at Mount Horeb. The Lord didn't make this covenant with our ancestors, but with us, all of us who are here and alive right now. The Lord spoke with you face to face on the mountain from the very fire itself. At that time, I was standing between the Lord and you, declaring to you the Lord's word because you were terrified of the fire and didn't go up on the mountain. Mm. So one of the things that's so interesting to me in the way that this is framed, I mean, Moses says it a number of times, but the clearest place is in verse three, the Lord didn't make this covenant with our ancestors, but with us who are here alive right now. Now You were just telling us that actually that's not like in the plain sense, true, right? It was with their parents and grandparents who have now all died in the wilderness. So can you talk to me about that verse and like what it means and why it matters? I mean, you know, we we spoke in the the stories we were reading in Genesis about like the fundamental drama that was unfolding in the book was this issue of lineage for Abraham and then like through whom is that lineage really going to flow. Yeah. I would say for the book of Deuteronomy, the drama is is really this sort of fundamental question of how we can really have sort of like an intergenerational religious life mm. where where we can can really take on the experiences of our ancestors yes. and feel as though we had lived it in our own bodies because otherwise we get a really short window on earth to right. <laughs> to understand what it is we're supposed to be doing like we have to be able to take take in a bigger bit of wisdom but that's just really hard and so i I feel like this is this is certainly like the the a pressing question in the Jewish community and I would m- imagine in in other religious communities too how do we really live our lives as though these stories of our ancestors yes. we read are our own stories yes. our memories yes 
I don't know how we do that, but Moses is asking them to do that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, I think that's so important. And, you know, in the modern world, like we seem increasingly, increasingly to disregard things that come before us. Like even like, you know, like the expression, okay, boomer or whatever, which I take a little personally, <laughs> even though I'm not a boomer. But like, there's this sort of disregard for the past. And I, I, I think that's probably always been more or less true. But this is, you know, saying exactly these stories that come from 2,500, 3,000, 3,500 years ago, these are, these are our stories. These are our memories. And so they, we can't, not only can we not disregard them, but we need to learn how to inhabit them. It's such an important way of thinking about what the biblical text is and how it relates to modern faith communities to say, not only is like, this is the story that our ancestors told, but like here it's this story happened to you. And I mean, I'm extrapolating a little bit to say that when Moses says that to the second generation or the third generation coming out of Egypt, that we can then say that about ourselves as inheritors Mm -hmm. of this text too. Mm-hmm. What are you telling me about a Jewish tradition that says like all Jews for all time, past and future were present mm-hmm. in this moment? Yeah, that past and future and whether you are born Jewish or you convert to Judaism at some point in your life, there is a tradition that every Jewish soul for all time was at Sinai and that that memory is is deeply embedded somewhere somewhere in you. Yeah. And I, I think that is I think that st- that story that teaching is a way to to try to bring this to life like a recognition that if if you don't <laughs> if you're if you don't have like a soul memory of that thing, yeah. it's hard to really inhabit it. But maybe if we can believe that our souls were there, we'll I don't know, dig a little deeper and be able to yeah. bring it to life. I love that somewhere it's just, it's in you. You, you actually mm-hmm. were present there. Mm-hmm. Just a beautiful idea. Now Moses is very impassioned here. At least in the CEB, there's lots of exclamation points. <laughs> um, <laughs> but like what he's saying is listen to the regulations and the case law, which is not exciting in the first instance. And so I'm just like <laughs> the case law translation is such a funny translation. I mean, it, it, it's good, it it's accurate, but it just sounds so like yeah. <laughs> the fine print. Yeah, Read the fine print. So I don't. I'm just. I guess I'm just interested in the like the sense of urgency and also the not excite excitingness on the surface of it. At least for somebody like myself of regulations and case law. I don't know what the question is exactly, but can you talk to me about like Moses is trying to get people to feel urgent about rules and regulations? Yeah. I mean, I have two thoughts as you ask that question. One is this text comes up in the Jewish calendar of reading in August. It's always an August text somewhere. And I Love that because it's the time when parents are getting ready to send their kids off to college. Oh, yeah. And so this feels to me very much like the, your your kids are launching into the world and you know all the dangers that are out there and you hope that you have done enough to teach them yeah. to live safely in the world 
but they really could get themselves killed. Like there are real dangers out there and they don't, it's like, no matter what you say to your 18 year old, they don't just, you know, like, thank God in some ways, right. Thank God they don't have the fear that, that we have for them, you know, many decades later. But that's really what I feel from Moses is that like, these are his children and they're a lot younger than he is. They have not seen and heard the things that he yeah. has seen and heard. And it's and you're right, case law is boring. Why would I want to know all these rules? Yeah. But at least what Moses has has seen and experienced has led him to believe that like it this is the only way. Like you are there is no way for you to have a good and happy life if you don't pay attention to these things. And I know it's boring. But you like, there's just no other way. Yeah, no, I love that, Amy. And, you know, one of the things that we say to our kids is remember who you are. You know, mm. like there's things that we care about. And this sort of is that, right? L- remember who you are. And let me tell you, like, these, this is the way we act in the world. I love your framing of that as like, now you're going off on your own. And there's some stuff you got to remember. Moses uses the language of covenant in verse three. The Lord Mm -hmm. didn't make this covenant with our ancestors. There's language about listening and about obeying. One of the things that you say from time to time is about, you know, the exodus from Egypt being about throwing off sort of one form of obedience that is required of you. And Mm -hmm. then like in Exodus 20, like five chapters later, now there's this whole other set of things that are expected of you. Mm-hmm. And so I, can you just remind me how you think about that? Like one way of life shifting to another way of life and the importance of obedience in that. Yeah. I mean, I guess the way I understand it is, you know, in, in Hebrew, the the word for a slave is eved, mm-hmm. you know, from I invent Dalit is the root of it. And, the word for work or worship of God is avodah. Like it's the same, it's the same word. And the idea is that it's, it's not that you were freed from slavery in Egypt in order to do whatever you want. And there is now you're, now you're, you know, like free and have no, (laughs) have no rules. It's that you are free to serve a power that is true and good and benevolent and huge and, you know, not serve, uh, not serve Pharaoh, not serve the forces of death, not serve capitalism, not serve, you know, like you're, it is a freedom from that sort of world of falsehood, but it's, but it's not freedom to do whatever you want. And so when, when the Israelites are freed, they're, they're they're freed into another set of expectations. But but God, I guess, thank God, does not have like whips to make you do the stuff, yeah. you know. So whereas any kind of active rebellion, if you are enslaved by an empire, would have immediate physical repercussions that would quickly teach you not to be doing that. That's generally not the way it works in the divine system. But I think that's what Moses, Moses is trying to impart that level of, I don't know if I want to say fear, but I almost want to say fear. Like fear is very motivating. Yeah. 
And and I the consequences are at least that serious in his mind. They just might not be as sort of immediately visible. So it's a little harder for us to learn. Yeah. Speaking of the fear, this last little part of this section, the Lord spoke with you face to face. And then he goes on to say, but I had to stand between you and the Lord because you were terrified of the fire and didn't want to go up the mountain. Mm-hmm. So there is a fear. I the, the, word, mm-hmm. the translation here in the CEB is you were terrified and didn't mm-hmm. go up the mountain. So I'm just curious how you think about that. Like the face-to-faceness of it is like, that's impressive. And then also the like terrified. And so I had to be your intermediary. What do you do with that couple of verses? I mean, it's uh, some of it is just a. It's so interesting to read this story through the the lens of Moses and like what we think Moses is trying to accomplish in this conversation. Yeah. So on the one hand, he's trying to make it feel very immediate and personal to them, and so says face to face when you know, as we might remember from the story in Exodus, the people do not want to go anywhere near that mountain. They are like, what is happening? And so I I don't know, I think Moses is trying to impart both that sort of God really is that personally invested in you and that like willing to have that kind of intimacy with you. And also the enormity of God's holiness and power is too much for many humans to encounter in that way. And so it's just sort of a, again, like a reminder of like the scale, the scale that we're talking about here. Yeah. But I don't think that it's in this particular section we're reading, but around this area of Deuteronomy, there's also a lot of like reminder, but God is invisible. Mm. So it's not, you know, like, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to keep it in mind. Mm That's, that's what I've, that's what I've got. Did you do something else with that? No, I mean, I really, I really love that. And then, you know, the fact that this is framing the 10 commandments, which are the core of the way of life that is given to Israel is yeah. a way of saying both of those things. Like it's terrifying to be face to face with God. And also God is sometimes invisible, but one way you can live your life in God's presence in ways that are both tangible and not as frightening is to mm-hmm. live this way of life that's being given to you. Mm-hmm. And you've helped me think about that sort of the Ten Commandments, but also the whole of the halakha is here's a way of living one's life in God's presence in clear and tangible structured ways. And so this is a way of sort of Moses being the intermediary sort of in an ongoing basis is live your life this way. And that's the way you can encounter God. In, and it's not terrifying and it's not invisible. It's yeah. Way of life. It can actually be pretty straightforward. Yeah. Not necessarily easy, but oh, no. yeah, but God is laying it all out. Yeah. This is what I want. Yeah. The last thing I want to say about this section is just a just a note, which is verse two calls the mountain there on Horev. Mm-hmm. That mountain is the same as Mount Sinai. Some places mm-hmm. in the Torah called Sinai, some places called Horev. And Deuteronomy tends to call it Horev. Mm-hmm. Is there, I don't know if there's anything else to say about that other than, so people aren't like, where the heck are we? Yeah, no, I think that's, yeah. We're at Sinai. Hi, y'all. It's Amy, one of your friendly co-hosts. And I want to tell you why Bible Worm is important to me. There's a Jewish tradition that Torah study is best done with a partner. 
Hevruta, we call it, someone who pushes you beyond where you would have gone on your own. Bobby was essentially my Hevruta for 10 years of grad school, and I've never found a thought partner quite like him. So when he asked if I wanted to read texts together, there was no real thought process before I said yes. The decision to record this podcast the way we do was risky. We don't have a script. We don't pre-talk things. We are thinking together live. And it is my hope that precisely because of that, you feel invited to think along with us. Because everyone needs a Hevruta. And if you don't have one, I hope you will let us be yours. If this way of being in relationship to biblical text speaks to you the way it speaks to me, I hope you'll help sustain us through Patreon at whatever level makes sense for you. There are some nice perks if you need them. Liturgies, videos, monthly discussion groups. This year I've added some recordings of the chanting of these texts that you might hear in a synagogue. Or you can just support us to show your appreciation and help us know that this work matters. Thanks for listening and for supporting us however you can. Okay, (laughs) so picking up in the Ten Commandments, I'm just right at the very end of verse 5. Okay. The Lord said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You must have no other gods before me. Do not make an idol for yourself, no form whatsoever, of anything in the sky above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow down to them or worship them because I, the Lord your God, am a passionate God. I punish children for their parents' sins, even to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But I am loyal and gracious to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Do not use the Lord your God's name as if it were of no significance. The Lord won't forgive anyone who uses his name that way. Keep the Sabbath day and treat it as holy, exactly as the Lord your God commanded. Six days you may work and do all your tasks, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Don't do any work on it, not you, your sons or daughters, your male or female servants, your oxen or donkeys or any of your animals, or the immigrant who is living among you, so that your male and female servants can rest just like you. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you out from there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. That's why the Lord your God commands you to keep the Sabbath day. Amy, one difference between the way the Ten Commandments are read in your Jewish tradition and my Protestant tradition is that in the Jewish tradition, if I'm if I'm right, the first commandment is actually, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Is that right? Yeah. In my tradition, we think of that as like the prelude, right? So here's the reason why you should do the 10 following things, but that itself is not one of the commandments. Can you talk about like what the significance of that being a commandment is in your tradition? It's so, I mean, it's so interesting because it's not, there's not an action item. Yeah. (laughs) You know, nothing is commanded there. Yeah. There's right. Nothing is commanded. And yet, okay, I'm going to come about this a little bit backwards. When I was in college, I think this is a common, somewhat compulsive interest for for Jews of that age. I really, I I just had so much Holocaust learning I felt called to do. 
and I really just threw my entire self into Holocaust learning and mm. post-Holocaust theology and, and all of that. And one of the things I read was from a philosopher named Emil Fackenheim, who said that the, there's a tradition that there's 613 commandments in the Torah, but that the 614th commandment is to remember the Shoah, remember the Holocaust. Mm. And that makes some people mad because it's giving it the status of Torah and it's not, doesn't have status of Torah. But I remember feeling so strongly at that time, but I am commanded. Like I feel in my bones that I am commanded. Mm. Like it's not a decision to be commanded. It's like, I, I feel it resonate in my body. Like that is, that is true. And so I mentioned that here because it's sort of the same thing. Like, remember the Holocaust. Okay, fine. That has a verb attached to it. But, like, that's not really an action item either. Like, right. remember it. But it really directs it, – it's like the, it directs your, your soul. It directs your heart. It, like, orients you in all things. Mm-hmm. And so I, I can see how – saying, I am the Lord, your God, that's not a commandment. That's sort of an introduction. But if you can feel that, the truth of that, like the weight yeah. of that in your bones, it it does have real like repercussions for how you mm-hmm. walk through the world and how you sort of take in all these things that are, that are happening around you. It's very, you know, it's nonspecific. <laughs> yeah. But for me, at least, that is, probably more so than any of the other commandments, that is the like compelling truth that I feel commanded to in my bones Mm. is that I have to remember that, that God is God and nothing else is. That's really beautiful, Amy. Thank you for that. I feel like that whether you call it a commandment or don't call it a commandment, like what you just said, I think is so fundamentally true that everything that comes after is dependent on that thing. Mm-hmm. And so whether it's a prelude, whether it's a commandment, like it is the basis on which the whole rest of the life that is being given to you, not just in the 10 commandments, but in the whole Torah, like that's the essence of it. And the thing upon which everything else is built. Mm-hmm. I also think that like not, so it is, I remember that I am God. It is also who brought you out of Egypt, who brought you out of slavery, which to me goes back to what you were saying earlier about what God is giving here is an alternative to something else that we know in the world, mm-hmm. which is the economy, the social practice, the way of framing the religious life, the economic life of Egypt, mm-hmm. uh, biblical Egypt as given in the Bible. Right. Which we can see then sort of like repeat itself throughout history, right? And the sort of like anxious accumulation, forced labor. We were talking last time about disgust at people who are considered not to be fully human in the way that um, the the, uh, elites of society are fully human. Like all of that. God set Israel free from that Mm -hmm. so that they could do something alternative to all of that. And then here's the basis for what that's going to look like. So that sort of sharpness of, it's not just here's some things God wants you to do. It is God is giving you an alternative to this other way, this dehumanizing way of living. Mm -hmm. And it's 
it's some work to live in ways that are not dehumanizing. And mm-hmm. so you've really got to pay attention to it. And so here it is. So that, mm-hmm. that contrast between the other way of life and the way of life now being given to you. Because yeah. God is God. I think right. that's important. Right. And I love, and I, I think you, this was sort of suggested in what you said, that there, it, Okay, you didn't say it this way, but like you're gonna I wanna say you're gonna be under the thumb of something. Like <laughs> yeah. you're gonna be you're gonna be within some yeah. set of sort of rules, imaginary or visible, that are driving how you're making your decisions. Yes. That will always be true. And and here's here's an option that you've been given that is a real gift. And yeah. also a challenge and, you know, like, but, but here's, here's one of them, but there's no such thing as, there's no such thing as total freedom from everything. Like we are all, yeah, we are all tied into systems and, and this one would be a good one to choose. Yeah. I think that's really important, Amy, the way that you've said that. And, you know, in the modern world, we tend to think of the options are you are religious and believe in God or God's or you are a secular person who has no religious commitments. Mm-hmm. The way you just said it, you're going to be under the thumb of something or someone, I think is a really helpful reframing in the modern world. I actually think it's also happening in the biblical text. Mm-hmm. But these kinds of things that we can give our lives over to, like these ultimate commitments, whether it's capitalism or profit or communism mm-hmm. or whatever it is, mm-hmm. Clemson Tigers football, um, <laughs> <laughs> probably, people probably do that. There are, oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> More so like five years ago than now. But you know, we're, we're still hopeful um, that you give your life to something. And so these first, what, uh, what you would consider the second commandment, my tradition considers the first two commandments, is about mm-hmm. not having other gods and not making images, mm-hmm. which I feel like is what you were getting at. Like there are all kinds of things out there wanting to be gods and you shall have none of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are there other things you would draw out of that? No other gods don't make images. No, I, I think we've covered the important stuff in there. I have in my translation, if it doesn't, yours said you shall not make for yourself an idol. Like mm-hmm. I think it's, it went just right in with idol. Do not make an idol mine, for yourself. Yeah. Mine is you shall not make a sculpted image, any mm. likeness of what is in heaven or above. And then it goes on to you'll have no other gods before me. So it's yeah. a little less clear that like direct relationship that the item you would be making isn't yeah. is intended as an idol. But for me, that just led into this like interesting thinking about the way that we sort of worship the images that are before us and we take them to be real, even if they're not really real. Yeah. And, and all of that. But I think that might be a rabbit hole for us to try to go down. Now. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> An interesting one, but yeah, but a rabbit hole nonetheless. No, I really like that. I think, yeah, there's so much sort of waiting there. Mm-hmm. Amy, the other thing in that little section that I never know what to do with is this part where God says, I punish children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me. And I'm loyal to the thousandth generation of those who love me. So I, I very much appreciate the God of thousand generations of mm. love. <laughs> I get, I don't know what to do with the God of three or four generations of punishment. What do you do with that sort of punishment and 
reward sort of thing? I mean, I think the first thing that that came to my mind when I was reading it this time, this is like kind of probably a dumb technicality to point out, but it seems like there would be a lot of people who both had an ancestor in the last thousand generations yeah. who loved God <laughs> and yeah. also an ancestor in the last four who brought some guilt upon themselves. Yeah. And so we're sort of sitting with the dual inheritance yeah. of those things. I mean, look, I don't love the idea that, I certainly don't love the idea that God is like punishing the descendants of someone for acts that were not their own. But I also think, I think a lot of the message of the biblical text is that we we are responsible for one another. Like we are, when we do things, it has impact on other people. And I think it's actually really true that what people did a few generations ago can have real impact on what our lives are. And what I'm doing has real impact on what my children and my grandchildren's lives will be like. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think of it in this idea of like God is punishing them, but I mean, we, I hate to even lift up the example of climate change, but it sure is right in my face. Like, yeah, we are actually responsible for one another and what we do mm-hmm. will impact many generations to come. Mm-hmm. And it's just true. I really appreciate that. And the, you know, what this, this covenant is really trying to do is to say, if you treat each other in these ways, it will lead to thousands of generations of blessing. But if you don't, so yeah. if you accumulate, if you take advantage of, if you enslave others, then this is where we're headed. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would say about that is, I think probably as, uh, as much as anybody, James Cone, the Black liberation theologian, mm-hmm. has helped me. Maybe it goes back to Abraham Joshua Heschel, distinguishing between, I think the distinction Heschel makes is between a wrathful God and the wrath of God, which is to say God's essence is not wrathful, but sometimes God has to be angry in order Mm -hmm. to set right injustice. And that's sort of the way James Cone gets at it too, is to say, sometimes love for the oppressed looks like judgment against the oppressor. We just Mm -hmm. saw that in the Mm -hmm. Exodus text. Mm -hmm. We would have Mm -hmm. if we had read the Exodus Mm -hmm. text. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so like a God who has no capacity for wrath is a God who ultimately can't do anything for the oppressed is sort of how Cone gets at it. And I'm sort of persuaded by that, that you need that wrathful side of God in order to set right systems of injustice. The other thing that I like here is that it's a thousand parts uh, compassion and it's Mm -hmm. four parts uh, wrath. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about like God has both of these capacities, but the compassion of God is extravagantly more than the wrath of God. Like that sort of helps me put all that together. Yeah. And I think it also fits into that conversation we started with, with like, what does it mean to say you were present at Sinai when we were just told (laughs) they were not present at Sinai? You know, we're asking these people to connect deeply and like own the experience of their ancestors. And we're also asking them to really own the experience of their descendants. Like this is, there is one story that is continuous over many generations. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's not just each little piece of the timeline yeah. that we happen to be in our bodies on the earth for. 
that we really are, we're part of something much bigger. Yeah. The next commandment, I really like the way it's translated in the CEB. I always heard it as don't take the Lord's name in vain, which mm. when I was growing up was like, don't say swear words, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is like, I mean, fair enough, but that's such a ridiculous thing to be in the 10 commandments. Right. Here it's don't lift up, don't use the Lord's name as if it were of no significance. So before we were talking about not worshiping other gods improperly, like don't give your loyalty to other gods. Now we're saying in your loyalty to the God of Israel, don't take that lightly or something like that, which is equally important and maybe more so in some contexts. Can you talk about that? Lifting up God as if God's name, as if it were of no significance. Hmm. I mean, that one just, that feels like, that feels like an easy commandment to me in some mm, ways. I mean, yeah. I think it's just like, for me, it feels like if you imagine the enormity of this deity, <laughs> you have to afford a certain like gravitas and seriousness to invoking the name of God. I mean, I I think I've learned at some point along the way that there was there was a sense that once you knew the names of different gods, you could call upon them and sort of manipulate them almost. Yeah. Like when you call out their name, they have to respond. And so maybe that's at play here. Like don't <laughs> don't play, you know, yeah. don't cry wolf. Yeah. But for me, it's just, I don't know, like being able to have enough distance from a situation to know like, is this really important enough to invoke <laughs> this most big and true and that real thing as God, or, or can I like dial it down a notch <laughs> yeah. and, and just handle it myself? You know, not everything needs to go from zero to 60 in mm, yeah. 10 seconds. I agree with you that it seems like a fairly straightforward commandment. And then also the way that I translate this in my own mind is don't invoke God's name for things that are not worthy of God. Mm. And Partly the way I think about it is not that I might get God engaged in things that are not worthy, but that when I use God's name, people are going to respond thinking that this is God's will. And so I got to be careful about Mm -hmm. what I say God is about. Mm -hmm. And if you frame it that way, like half of our public discourse is people invoking God's name for things that are not worthy of God, right? And the, the thing that's coming to mind for me is like, you know, like a meme with a American flag and an eagle and a cross, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. conflate that kind of American political, like yeah. foreign and domestic agenda with like the will of God. And you can scare people or inspire people yes. into things by p- attaching God's name to them that arguably God does not really care about. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's the co-opting of God. Mm-hmm. It's like if Pharaoh had (laughs) decided to like say like, I'm doing this in the name of the God of Israel. And then like, no, you're not. Um, Right. And so that sort of like putting God's name on things that in fact are representative of the other way of life here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's exactly right. So I mentioned this transitional commandment of Sabbath. I just want to ask you, basically I want to ask you two questions. One is, why do you think the Sabbath is so important as to be in the Ten Commandments? The second is the framing here about remembering that you are a slave. But let me ask you the first part of that first, which is why, like in all the things that you could that God could command, 
why is rest so important? Mm. I mean, I, I can tell you what is sort of most appealing to me, I guess. You know, it's such a, the Sabbath is so interesting because it like, it's it, already in the, in the creation story, we're talking about rest on the seventh day. And, and there are other iterations of this commandment where it's really sort of an act of like imitatio dei to take yeah. that day of rest. Here it's, it's given a different reason. For me, it, it feels like, um, almost an act of humility, like a, a recognition mm. that that the work we do is important and we should do it. And it's and when we don't do it, the sun will still rise and the, you know, that yeah. the world continues and um we shouldn't we should understand that we are important, but we shouldn't think that we are so important that creation cannot go a single day without our mm-hmm work. Yeah. I feel like it's sort of a, a, a way to, to write the right relationships in the world a little bit that we can be sort of on equal footing. There's, there's this beautiful teaching I read, I think this summer that, that as you sort of come out into, into your yard on Shabbat and see a flower, you are prohibited because it's Shabbat from picking the flower. Mm. And and that's a beautiful thing to not even have in your mind. What should I do about how beautiful that flower is? Should yeah. I bring it into my house? Should I give it to my neighbor? Should I do? You shouldn't do anything about it. You should love the flower. Like that yeah. flower is right now a creature of God on equal footing with you. And here you mm. are in a field and isn't that lovely? That, of course, is like a teaching that comes from many, many generations later. But but I think just that, that idea that we need to... St- sometimes stop trying to shape things and just appreciate yeah. how they are. Kind of like it stops that like avalanche a little bit of progress. I love that, Amy. And to me, it's like, it's not in this text, but it is in this text in that sense of, I was asking you about why the framing in terms of Egypt and slavery mm. and what you just said, I think frames that really nicely, which is there is a way of thinking, which was exemplified in the biblical text by Pharaoh which is about forcing labor. It is about building cities to accumulate excess. It's about sort of this constant frantic claiming of things as mine. And this commandment, the way it's framed here, breaks that. You should not be asking, can I, do I own that flower? Can I take that flower for myself? Because Mm -hmm. this this is breaking that cycle of ownership and accumulation. Where that then plays out with human beings is because you know what it's like to be exploited in an economic system, you mm-hmm. should not exploit others in an economic system. Mm-hmm. You should take one-seventh of the profits you could maximize and willingly give them away so that people who work for you can rest and so that you yourself can rest. So not only does it sort of like imitatio dei, but also the sort of n- not imitatio de Pharaoh, right? Um, we've got to live our life in some other way that is not about economic exploitation. I love taking the Exodus version of the, that commandment and the Deuteronomy version mm-hmm. together and sort of holding them. Mm-hmm. This one to me is about the accumulation economy and not taking advantage of other people. 
Yeah, it's, I mean, it's so clear in here. If you pull out the middle section of verses 13 and 14, or even just 14, you shall not do any work, dot, 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 so that your male and female slave may rest as you do. It's not, you shall not do any work so that you can rest. It's so that the people who are working for you can rest. And also you'll rest, but Yeah. 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 All right, Amy, so I'll pick up in the second, so to speak, tablet of the Ten Commandments in verse 16. Okay. Honor your father and mother exactly as the Lord your God requires, so that your life will be long and so that things will go well for you on the fertile land that the Lord your God is giving you. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not testify falsely against your neighbor. Do not desire and try to take your neighbor's wife. Do not crave your neighbor's house, field, male or female servant, ox, donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Of those commandments directed toward the community, what strikes you as particularly important? The donkey. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Somebody steal your donkey, Amy. (laughs) No, but I just, I covet donkeys all the time. Yeah. You know... I don't have one commandment from this set that I would sort of lift up as I think this is really the core thing. But I think what rises up for me from all of these is the idea that anything we might do that dismantles systems of trust and Mm. sort of degrades the people around us will ultimately destroy destroy any chance we have of having a good life ourselves or yeah. together in community. Uh-huh. And so that that can include things like um murder certainly. Um adultery, I mean is is a different kind of complicated, but you can imagine the way that like adultery or stealing or bearing false witness, it just if people can't trust each other, yeah. um, then there's no wet. We can't build any kind of web. Like we can't, we need to be, we need to remain mutually mm-hmm. dependent. Mm-hmm. Even when we're in the land, even when we have our crops, even when we might feel like we are controlling our own fate. So these for me feel like examples of, of things that, that could degrade that. I think that's a great way of thinking about it. The one that's always been a little strange to me, although I like the way that the CEB translates it, do not desire and try to take, is the Mm. way they translate the word covet. The word covet Mm -hmm. is weird. Like, I don't use that in my real life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when when I was a kid, I always heard it as like, don't wish you had something that belonged to someone else. So it was like an internal thing. And maybe that's worth thinking about that like your internal attitudes actually do affect community. But one of the things that's helped me think about that beyond the internal attitude is, I think it was Marvin Chaney, a biblical scholar uh, from a previous generation who pointed out to me in Micah 2, and when he's critiquing the social wrongs of the Southern kingdom of Judah, he says they covet fields and seize them houses and take them away. And he's pointing out that this is about seizure of property. Mm. So coveting is about desiring something and then structuring 
the economy so that you can take it. Mm-hmm. If you read it that way, then you start to think about like predatory loans and like mm-hmm. redlining and then like all mm-hmm. of these sort of social practices that are about, I really want that thing that belongs to someone else. So how can I use How my can power? I manipulate the system so exactly. that it becomes mine? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is different than what we might call stealing, where like you haven't manipulated the system, right. you've just broken the rule. Yeah. Now you've figured out how to change the rule. Yes. But you've still taken it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which then shifts coveting from being like this internal attitude to being like a really insidious kind of yeah. social behavior. Yeah. yeah. Like, like stealing amplified. Yeah. It's not just snatching someone's purse, but it's stacking the decks against them. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Amy, what else? I don't want to think we need to probably talk through each of these one by one, but. Is there anything else that you see in this section that you really want to pull out? I mean, I think I just want to do one more sort of tie. Like I know that sometimes the first half are seen as commandments related to God and the second half are seen as commandments related to relationships among humans. And I think that's valid. And I also want to, you know, draw out the possibility or the way in which we we need to be in community with people in any given moment and also across generations in yes. order to have any chance of holding on to the enormity of what we understand God to be. Like mm. no one person is going to be able to get it and hold on to it and stay oriented that way against all the forces of the world around them. We actually really need, we need people around us in order to hold on to that first thing that like, I am the Mm. Lord, your God, because we'll forget. Yeah. And so, and so we have to tend to those relationships for their own good. Yeah. And also for, for any possibility of holding on to, to this invisible, invisible, but really true thing. I love that. And that helps me like coming back to the, I guess that's the fifth commandment about honoring your father and mother so that your life will be long. Like, I like Mm -hmm. the way you're thinking about that, or at least what I took you to be thinking as like, honor the generations that come before. And also Mm -hmm. you were talking earlier about the generations that come after. Mm -hmm. And so when you read these together, that you are not an autonomous individual or you're generation is not its own thing. Like we're not generation X and generation millennial and Mm -hmm. generation Z or whatever, but we all belong to each other. And Mm. if we could get that right, that would go not just in the life of faith, but also in the life of the world. I think that would go a long way toward setting things right. Speaking of that, the narrative lectionary takes us finally down into Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through nine, which is about remembering and passing along to future generations what you have experienced. So I'm going to read that and then we'll talk about it. Israel, listen, our God is the Lord, only the Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your being, and all your strength. These words that I am commanding you today must always be on your minds. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you are sitting around your house and when you are out and about, when you are lying down and when you are getting up. Tie them on your hand as a sign. They should be on your forehead as a symbol. Write them on your house's door frames and on your city's gates. 
Amy, I feel like it's hard to sort of overstate how important this little section of text is in the Jewish tradition. Like one of the daily prayers, the Shema comes, begins here, right? Mm-hmm. Can you talk? I mean, I want to know just like all the things, but that Deuteronomy 6.4, Shema Yisrael, our Lord, uh, our Lord is one, or however you want to translate that. Can you just talk about that sort of the importance of listening and how you understand that particular verse? Mm. Gosh, it's so it's almost like this verse is so like ubiquitous in Jewish life that it's almost hard to even yeah. talk about anymore. Um, yeah, this like you say it in the morning, you say it when you go to bed, you say it at all the services, all the time. We teach it to the kids in sign language. We te- you know, like I mean, they're like it's <laughs> it's everywhere. It's yeah. everywhere. And, you know, we have, we, we often say, and I think it's true that there's not really a Jewish like creed there's, you know, but if there were one, <laughs> yeah, it, it would be this. Yeah. And one of the, one of the things that I think is so interesting to me is that we don't just say the Lord is our God. The Lord is one or the Lord alone. However you want to translate that. We continue to chant out loud this next part about loving the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. Yeah. Like like we're reading the instructions. Like these are given as instructions to ourselves and we're we're in part like enacting it by reading yeah. the instructions aloud. And I just think yeah. that's so like I don't know, meta. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and we also, as I know you know, Bobby, like that the specific things that are mentioned here bind them as a sign on your hand and as a symbol on your forehead. Like there is a specific uh like piece of ritual apparatus called to fill in that that Jews wear for some prayer services on weekdays that that like the words of the Shema are in a little box that are, you know, placed on those parts of your body. And we have, you know, mezuzot on the doorposts that hold those words. Like we really sort of, we're quite literal in our enactment of this. And it, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like the words of the prayer itself have become a ritual. I mean, that's exactly what this text seems to have in mind, though, right? Like, recite this that I'm commanding you so that it is always on your mind. Mm-hmm. Recite it to your children. Like, that mm-hmm. sense that you're talking about is it like it really is like always there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's become so I love the way you describe that so pervasive in life that you you don't even necessarily make, like, know how to parse pillowcases with the young kids. I mean, it's like <laughs> yeah. it's everywhere. But that's what this has in mind is that this would become so familiar to you. Like not just these verses, but like the whole Torah that's being given here and the story that upon which it is based, that you wouldn't quite know necessarily how to parse it all out. It's just like part of who you are. It's part of what passes down to your children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that, like that line, verse seven, recite them to your children, talk about them all the time. So you can imagine your kids being like, oh, dad, you know, <laughs> like that generational connection that we were talking about in the previous text. Right. And mm-hmm. so you you remember that you also were at Sinai and that God made this covenant with you. And now you're passing it down to your children and your grandchildren. Like at every moment in this text, that intergenerational, this is who we are, passing that, passing that along. I love that. Can I tell a really embarrassing story? <laughs> Please, yeah. I love embarrassing <laughs> stories. Um, 
at my daughter's bat mitzvah. She has, she, my daughter is a very spiritual being. She has a very different kind of spirituality than I do, but like this stuff is real to her. And when she says the Shema at night, she developed this habit of um, making what looks like a shin with her finger, like putting with her hand, putting three yeah. fingers up. And she puts the three fingers on her forehead as she says the Shema because you're supposed to cover your eyes. And like she, she has like a whole sort of practice around it. It's really lovely. And the rabbi knew this and so asked her about it. And she hadn't planned anything to say, but she started describing what she did. And then she tried to translate the Shema and she was like, well, I don't really know what it means. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> which was again the sort of like the the good the it is great that it's so pervasive and also yeah. it it's developed this life around yeah. it for her that it has real meaning and I think connectivity to God that that transcends the words and also oh my God as a Jewish educator I was like oh my God she did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. she would say that at her bar mitzvah but I think I mean I guess that's sort of the beauty and the risk with with a lot of things that come to live within yeah. our our religious lives become so common yeah. that you kind of stop, you stop translating them. You just live with them. I really love that. And yeah, you know, as a tech scholar too, that sort of stresses me. Like all I want to do is think about well, what does it mean or like what could it mean and how, mm-hmm. like what are the different openings But I often have trouble answering the other side of that, which is like, how does that shape you as a human being, you know? And so for somebody like that, like your daughter to have clearly being shaped by it on a daily basis, Mm -hmm. it's a really helpful corrective to the sort of overly interpretive mindset, like somewhere, somewhere in that. Somewhere in between (laughs) would be good. It was really beautiful. I know the word Shema here is translated as listen it can also mean to respond in obedience or something like that. Mm-hmm. Can you, I mean, I, to me, those two words like listen and obey feel really different in English. I'm just curious how you hold those two sort of senses of Shema. Mm. That's so funny. In English to me, they, in some ways they don't like, cause I uh-huh. picture parents saying like, listen, yeah, <laughs> that tone. What do you say with Im- that tone? Yeah. Implies, li- like, yeah, implies yeah, obey. Yeah. It almost reminds me of, you know, we've talked about hineni before, but which which means like, here I am. But just hine by itself is sometimes is translated behold. Like it has this like urgent putting something right in front of your face quality about it. So, you know, I prefer the translation like look. Like, look at this thing right here. And, and I feel Shema the same way as Mm. like, and I kind of like that it's not visual, that it's like tune out the things that are directly around you. Like, don't, don't be distracted. Yeah. Like incline your ear, listen. And there there is an obedience that comes with it. But, you know, as, as we were saying, there's this, at least in this first line, it's just what, what they want you to hear is the fact that the Lord is our God. Yeah. Like it kind of goes back to that same statement that yeah. is either a commandment or the opening. Yeah, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. I was listening to you say that and I was thinking about the sort of cacophony of voices that's always vying for our attention. And I mean, in a very real sense, like you will follow whoever you're listening to. Like over yeah. time you get shaped by the voices that you 
here. Like Google and Facebook have figured this out, right? And they now they know yeah. how to advertise to us. And so they like reinforce our way of being in the world. And so to say, listen, like this is the voice. This is the one statement. Like if you're only going to remember one thing, like listen to that. The Lord yeah. our God, the Lord is one. And then everything else follows from there. Mm-hmm. That's really lovely. But I just feel like baked into the instructions that follow, there is this sort of fear or knowledge that you're going to forget. Yeah. You're going to forget. Something yeah. is going to distract you. And so you have to like put sticky notes all over your house. Like you have to, you have to do everything you can to yeah. keep putting this back in your, yeah. in your face. Yeah. So that line, love your, love the Lord, your God with all your heart and all your being and all your strength. Like, to me, it feels very like emotive and very mm-hmm. internal. Mm-hmm. But what you're saying about that is in order to do that, you need all of these reminders around you. You can't simply like will it on your own. Like that's so helpful to me to think like loving God is about doing things that remind mm-hmm. you to love God. There's like this iterative process. Mm-hmm. All right, Amy, well, there is much more that one could say about the foundation of all Judaism, Christianity, and arguably Western culture (laughs) that is here in the Ten Commandments. As you're hearing this text today, talking with me, what is striking you as the most important thing to walk away with? Bobby, I, I feel really struck by something you just were saying about how, um, we have to part of part of our active decision that yes, we are going to love God with all our heart and soul and might. I like to translate it as your veriness, like meodecha, mm-hmm. like your <laughs> your muchness or your muchness. Um, is that part of part of needing all those reminders and sort of cues around us to help us do that? Is the community that we surround ourselves with and. It is a community that helps us take seriously the testimony of our ancestors. I mean, if you're surrounded by a community that that doesn't really want to talk about this stuff and you have some stories from your ancestors, but you don't have anyone else around you who will say, yeah, you know, I think that's true. Or even who will engage seriously in the conversation with you. It's hard. This is hard. I mean, it seems like it shouldn't be hard to do this, but it is hard to do this. It is hard to keep front and center the idea that there's this invisible divine force in the world that we're supposed to be orienting our life towards. And I think what this this text just says over and over to me in different ways is that we are each other's support system in doing this. And Mm -hmm. you, you have to help the people around you to lean into this and you have to be willing to remind yourself in every way you can. And we are, you know, you said earlier, we are responsible for each other. And I think that's exact. That is what this text says to me. We are responsible for each other across generations Mm -hmm. and right now. Mm. I love that, Amy. And I, I want to affirm everything that you said. And And also, and also I want to come back to that prelude to the 10 commandments or the first commandment Mm -hmm. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And say that everything that you're saying about this being difficult, this being something we need to constantly remind ourselves, this thing that we need to support one another across generations, also has this radical differentiation from other ways of life, Mm -hmm. which were evident in the Egypt of biblical Pharaoh and are also evident in the world around us all the time, that there is this possibility of living in the way that is most obvious to us, that is given to us in all of these other voices, constantly telling Mm -hmm. us about being anxious, about saving for retirement, Mm -hmm. to come back Mm -hmm. to the beginning of our conversation, Mm -hmm. about feeling like there is not enough, about viewing other people as people to be uh, competitors or Mm -hmm. to be exploited or to be enslaved in order to accumulate for ourselves, to take people's land and covet it. Like all of this is the way of life that is given to us by the voices so often around us. Mm -hmm. And so this thing that we are orienting to as a community that we all need each other for is to live out this radically different way of life in which we express love for God by expressing the wholeness of relationship in the human community. And we refuse to exploit each other. We refuse to take what belongs to each other. We refuse to structure society in ways that privilege ourselves at the expense of others. In order to do that, we need each other to hold each other accountable, to Mm -hmm. listen to the experiences of older generations, to hear the experience of younger Mm -hmm. generations, to constantly remind ourselves And to come back to that Shema, listen to this voice, right? This is the thing that matters. Mm -hmm. That's the beginning of living this whole other way of life uh, that that we're called to both as Jews and as Christians to live out in the present. Yeah. It's really a circular system. Like once you're, it's mutually supportive. It's Mm. a mutually supportive system, but you're right. There are a thousand voices suggesting something else. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. All right, Amy, I think that might be the fourth or fifth time we've talked about that text, but I always feel like I come out with something kind of different from it. So thank you for that. That's that's the hope. That's the hope. Next week, we are going to be over in the book of Ruth in chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, and a little bit at the end in chapter 4. Ruth. All right. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. That sounds good. Well, thanks for a great conversation, Bobby. You too. I'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced and edited by Bobby Williamson. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many thanks to all of our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. Join us again next time when we'll discuss the story of Ruth as told in Ruth 1, 1 to 17, and 4, 13 to 17. Until then, keep on digging.